It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, hello. Hello. Now, five years in and you you keep surprising me. I keep finding things out about you. Go on. You look horrified. Yeah. Are you aware that uh, a book of extracts from Alan Rickman's diaries has been published? I was aware of it. Justine, but I was aware of it. I didn't think we were mentioned. And Justine told me the other day that we are mentioned. You are. And the thing is, the, the reason this has had so much attention is he's, he's, he's quite uh, waspish. He's got, got, yeah. got quite the acid pen. Yeah. How scared are you of what I'm about to tell you? Uh, a little bit scared. 7th of May. He describes a dinner party attended by you and Justine and some other people. As we closed the door, having cleaned up mostly at 2am-ish, we said with one voice, oh, nightmare. But it's not about you. Oh, phew. <laughs> the food, wonderful as it was, was on the table at 9.30 and 10.30, embarrassingly late, but it was Pakistan time for Rahila. She was making the food, I remember this. Ah. She was a friend of theirs, I think, who'd come round to make the food. Right. Ed M was patient, considering he was to be on Andrew Marr in the morning. <laughs> That speaks well of you. I do vaguely remember it. I do vaguely remember it. You weren't getting hangry. What's hangry? Like when you're hungry and then you're angry. I I do remember the food being very late, (laughs) but he and his wife Rima were very charming. He also writes about another dinner party he was at, that you were also there. He said, Ed is upright and still looking forward. An inspiration and still curious about everybody and everything. Isn't that, isn't that a relief and a lovely thing to read about yourself? nice. What I'm not doing is... um, Editing out. Editing the... out. You know, there, there are no bad entries. Well, that's nice, isn't it? It is. What do you remember about him? Um, that he's extremely charismatic. And also, I think, quite curious, actually. And his wife, Rima, is lovely. It was also a fascinating insight for me into what you're doing in your social life. No wonder you're declining invitations to karaoke from me if you're 
knocking about with Hollywood A-listers. I don't think I get those invitations anymore. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm knocking about with you. <laughs> How is, uh, how's your week been? It's been quite a week. I've been watching the Tory conference. We're recording on Wednesday, just before Liz Truss's speech. So who knows where we're going to be by next Monday. God knows what it'll be like after the honeymoon period is over. Exactly. You know what I think is underestimated in this is, one, politics in the Conservative Party, it's a very significant shift to the right. She's retreated to a kind of pre-Cameron Conservative. I mean, I always thought the thing about Johnson, which was for all of his disastrous faults, law-breaking, etc., he said, I'm a Brexity Heather, which meant, you know, I'm an interventionist and I was for Brexit and levelling up, all that. She's gone a long way away from that. So I think apart from the unfunded tax cuts, the irresponsibility, all of that stuff, she still says she wants to do the top-rate tax cut, even though they've U-turned on it. Her political positioning is a problem for the country, and the second thing I was thinking about this this morning, I think the Tory party does have an identity crisis. They've got a different social base now than they had. Their membership is different post-Brexit. They represent seats they didn't used to represent. And I think it's all quite scrambled for them. Are they trying to be One Nation Tories? Are they trying to be Thatcherite Tories? And that is the sort of thing which is so unresolved. Mm. And I, I do think that the, the level of open dissent and warfare is quite extraordinary for a party in government. What a charismatic media performer, though. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think it's going very well for them. That would be my astute observation. Now, we're in the early stages of, I think, making podcast history mm. with the world's first crowdsourced theme tune. Oh, right. Yeah. I haven't checked whether we're the first people to ever do that, but we probably yeah. are, right? Mm. So we're, we're five years old. We thought maybe it's time for a refresh. Last yeah. week, we had the, the composer of the Strictly yeah. Come Dancing theme music, Dan McGrathon, giving you some tips. And this email arrived... <laughs> from Arthur Jones, who says, Hello, chaps. You mentioned being in the mood for new music. It just so happens that last night, my son, Finley, who is 17 and obsessed with writing filmy tunes, had just played me the attached track. He told me he imagines it accompanying some film about childhood. I said, it sounds like the music to a political drama like Borgen. He called me a monster, but he did agree to let me send it to you. Wow. Are you ready to, yeah, to have yeah, a listen yeah. to this? Are we going to have to pay Finley royalties? Um, <laughs> I, I Not think, yet. I think it's, it's the act of his dad sending this email somehow no. waves us okay. of responsibility. Fine. But maybe you can get Justine to look over yeah, the legals fine, of that. Fine. Okay, here it is. I like it. It's stirring, isn't it? I really like it. It makes me want to get out of my chair and talk about Swedish parental leave. <laughs> <laughs> do you do you think it needs lyrics? Uh, are you are you asking? Well, I, I, before you got I me, mean, this was literally ten minutes before you got here this morning. Remember, no bad ideas in brainstorming. Yeah. I, I did scribble some things down. I just wanted to know what you what go you on. thought. Hello, good people. Yeah. Be you human, dog, or seagull? <laughs> no? Come get an earful. Can you see where it's going? Yep. Of our reasons to be cheerful. 
think the second line could do with work. The one with the seagull, that's yeah. the best one, in it? Well done, Finley. I mean, I'm not sure really how willing Finley is here. That could end up being a score to some Hollywood film or major Netflix drama. Yeah. And his dad is trying to... Well, well done, Arthur, I'd say. Keep them coming. Do, please. It doesn't have to be as professional as Finley's, by the way. If you uh, just want to record something in voice memos on your phone, then that's fine. Or on a kazoo. Or on a, yeah, what other instruments do you think would be good? A harp. Harp, yeah. Are there any harpists out there? I'm sure there are. Whether yeah. they listen to this is a whole other yeah. thing. I think if if the idea of writing a whole theme tune for us overfaces you, yeah. just a little bit, and then maybe we can, in, in true crowdsourcing fashion, we can stitch it all together somehow. Sounds good. Maybe we need to impose some kind of deadline on this. What if we wanted to debut the new theme on our Christmas episode? Does okay. that give us enough time? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, the, the email address to send us submissions, ideas, no matter how rough, reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. And um, we'll, we'll try and get some more advice and pointers for you. But the email address, reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Should we talk about what we're talking about? This week, we're talking about public wealth funds, which is inspired by this Labour idea. Yes. Of a national wealth fund, yes. which was a recent announcement, which would put a share of the benefits we get from government investment into the hands of the public. That's the basic idea, right? I mean, there's different ways of, th of thinking about it. Our national wealth fund was about investment in green industry, where there, as you say, will be a return to the public. We're going to be talking to Josh Ryan Collins, who's a friend of the pod. Uh, he was with us back on episode 208 on digital currency. Then we're going to be talking to Professor Karen Thorburn, who is going to tell us all about the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth ah, Fund. Yes. Yeah, which we, we did cover a while back, yeah. but we'll see how it yeah. relates to this idea. And then finally, we'll have Rayan Hack from the Community Wealth Fund, who's going to tell us about how we can put more wealth in the hands of people who need it the most. And then we're going to be, as a special swimming treat, we're going to be talking to Alice LePage. And she's going to be talking to us about how a 200-year-old Lido was revived. You read about this in the news and you, you, you said, get LePage. I want LePage I on the did. podcast. I did. Paging LePage. <laughs> What's your reason to be cheerful? My reason to be cheerful is that I tend not to have time to read novels, but occasionally I do. And I have loved the first two Richard Osman novels. He's a publishing sensation. Yeah, Thursday Murder Club, Man Who Died Twice, and the new one is out, The Bullet That Missed, and it is in my hot hands, and I've started reading it, and it's highly entertaining. And he's a New York Times bestseller. Yes. The man is a polymath. He's a giant polymath. He's done incredibly well. So, there you go. Strongly recommended. What's your reason to be cheerful? Autumn. It's my favourite season. Leaves are being swept up into piles. I can dress in autumnal colours. And I don't know if you noticed in our kitchen, my wife does an annual gourd display. Are you making that up? No, I think it's an American thing. Mm. It basically looks like she's been to the greengrocers and bought a bunch of little squashes and pumpkins and then not put them away. But that's going to be on our table, rotting for weeks and weeks and weeks now. I think I'm sort of a bit traumatised by gourds because I seem to remember having to draw them in secondary school. Really? <laughs> what don't you think? Are you draw sure that's what gourd. you were drawing? Was were people drawing gourds on your exercise books, Ed? Were bullies drawing gourds no, no, on no, your books? No, art. In oh, art. I thought people were drawing maybe no, sort no. Of two pumpkins and then a long gourd. No, no, right, no. OK. No. OK, because yeah. that, that happens with teenagers. No, but it's more like, you know, draw this gourd in okay. art. I'm, I'm glad to hear you've not been living in denial about what, what no. that actually was. Right. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. 
With us now is Professor of Finance at the Norwegian School of Economics, Karin Thorburn. Hello. Hello, hello. Hi. Thank you for joining us. Where are you, Karin? Are you in Oslo? I'm in Bergen, Norway. That's where my institution is located, on the West Coast. So let's talk about the Sovereign Wealth Fund in Norway. I, I believe it's known as the Oil Fund, the Olia Fundet. How is my pronunciation? Uh, yeah, Olia Fundet. Olia you know, Fundet. But that's, but that's its casual name. I mean, officially, it's, it's the government pension fund global. Uh, what is that in, in What is that in Norwegian? <laughs> SPU, uh, Statens Pensionsfond Utland. You know, I had Can you to repeat apologize. that for us, Ed? <laughs> I'm not even Norwegian, so you have my Swedish uh, pronunciation. Ah, uh-huh. <laughs> I thought there was a slight lilt of Swedish pronunciation in your Norwegian. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I could hear the dots rather than the, the line through the er. Uh. Yes. Um, uh, so, so tell us a little bit about the fund, um, the, the history of it, when and why Norway decided that it would be a good idea. Well, when uh, the resources coming in from the oil in the 80s uh, starting become bigger, they, they planned for not consuming everything directly, but actually to have a saving mechanism. And this fund, that's the way the, the money was saved. So I think the first uh, contribution was made in the early 1990s. And the idea was really twofold. One, to diversify the assets, not having everything in the ground as oil and gas resources, but to actually diversify and have a financial asset as well. And then, of course, the overarching thought was to save the money for future generations, saying we don't own this just because we are the ones that happen to find it and um, take it out of the ground. This is really something that belongs to generations of Norwegians. And current isn't it extraordinary because the UK also discovered oil in the 70s. But we didn't do that, did we? I think it was extraordinary. I think it was a set of very strong and clever bureaucrats that got the politicians on their side and that said, let's not just spend everything. You know, Norway has looked a lot to the Netherlands as well that found natural gas in the 70s. And that was basically spent and and used by the politicians. And I just think that these, I would say primarily bureaucrats, but of course also politicians, they had a clear view of what they wanted to do and, and they were able to execute it. So, yes, it's quite unique. And tell us how big the fund is now and how it works. So today the fund is about 1.2 trillion US dollars. I think I'm right in saying it owns about 1% of the global stock market. Is that right? On average, one and a half, actually. It's about 2% 2 of the equities in Europe and 1% of the equities in in the US. But if you look at Europe, it belongs to the 10 largest shareholders in 80% of all listed companies. Yes, so it's a major share owner uh, today. And I think the size of the fund is pretty much uh, almost four times GDP of Norway. So it's, it's huge relative to the size of the country. We have this saying on English game shows, when you fail to win a prize, which is here's what you could have won. (laughs) Uh, And I feel like listening to you, and many of our listeners will be thinking, here's what you could have won, Britain. I mean, we've had an incredible run in the stock market for the past 10 years that this fund has really benefited from. Tell us about what happens to the revenues from the oil fund. I don't know how big they are, but what are they used for? So the revenues, it's two sources. One is the taxation and some ownership on the Norwegian shelf. So oil companies have a 50% uh, 
excise tax or oil and gas, everything on the Norwegian shelf, very high corporate tax rate, almost 80%. That goes straight into the It's fund. worse. Sorry, Karen, can I just underline that? Because it is worth saying, because we've had a debate about so-called windfall taxes here. And it, it's ended up, I think, at something like uh, 65% windfall tax against a normal tax rate of 40% here. But you're saying in Norway it's 80%. Yeah. So the normal tax rate is 22 and then if you happen to produce on the Norwegian shelf, you pay 22 plus 50. 72, so yeah. So today it's 72. I said 80 because yeah. the corporate tax rates were higher right. a few years ago. And it's been that as, as long as I've lived in this country for almost uh, 15 years and probably longer. Plus then the Norwegian state owns some of the fields themselves directly. All of that goes into the fund. In addition... The fund has a return that depends on the financial markets. You know, when the stock market goes up, the fund makes a lot of money from that too. The politicians take out money to spend in, in the government budget. It, it takes it through the regular government budget process. And the parliament has a self-imposed rule that they don't use more than 3% of the value of the fund on average every year. Of course, you can spend more in certain years and less in other years, depending on the economy and the business cycle. Uh, but these 3% of the fund makes up for about 15 to 20% of the government budget. So that's just like an extra injection into the government budget outside the taxes. And the idea of having this cap is that this generation, we don't own the fund. The fund should be saved for future generations. And what about the decisions made about the f fund and uh, what it is and isn't allowed to invest in? What, what are some of the principles behind it? They were very clever at the time thinking about the structure, the organization of the fund as well, because ultimately it's owned by the people and therefore by the politicians. So the ultimate decisions are made by the parliament. But it's been set up in such a way that the politicians don't meddle with the investments. The actual investments are, are carried out by uh, Norges Bank Investment Management. That's an investment manager that's housed at the Bank of Norway. And they get a pretty detailed benchmark index that they have to trail closely. The, the benchmark index, it's set by the Ministry of Finance and then approved by the parliament. So the entire parliament stands behind the kind of risk taking the fund takes. Now, politicians, of course, want legitimacy as well within Norway uh, in particular because they want to be reelected. So what they've set is some principles that they want to invest in. Based on, and these include, you know, no investments in weapons of mass destruction, child labor, other bad stuff. And then there is a separate ethics committee that says, here are individual companies that we think you should exclude. And since they do the value-based uh, assessments, the investment manager has only one goal, which is to maximize financial returns given the, the risk profile that they're given by the government. And I think that's very clever because it reduces the use of the fund for political purposes. Just say, because you've brought up the issue of the ethical decisions of the fund, how does that relate to fossil fuels and the climate crisis? 
Yeah. So I was part of an expert group that looked into climate risk. And I think there are two parts to your question. One is, how does Norway view the pure fact that this fund came from fossil fuel revenues? And I think there, sort of the the national truth, if I can, or the national story is that Norwegians are good guys because we only consume hydropower. And then the fact that we sell these fossil fuels, it's because others want them, but the bad guys are the ones that burn the fossil fuels. We don't burn it, so we're the good guys. I think that's the that's the national myth with re- regards to the sources of the revenue. Then as a fund manager or as an investor, how's the best way to deal with fossil fuel risk? We obviously as a country have a big exposure still to fossil fuel risk because there's so much oil in the ground. The expert group that I was on, we recommended that from a financial perspective, it's best to just have this world portfolio that the oil fund has, but then try to influence the portfolio companies to reach net zero emission goals by 2050 in accordance with the Paris Agreement. And and this has now been implemented in the oil fund. When you say it's a national myth that Norway is a good guy because it doesn't use oil and gas and uh, uses hydropower and other aeronauts are bad guys. You saying it's a national myth suggests you don't believe it. What's your view then about how much of this oil and gas should be extracted? Hmm. You know, that's a, an ethically very difficult question, I think. So I'm not Norwegian, so therefore I can say this about the Norwegians, you know, that it's a national myth. But I think there is a double morale really in saying it's not an oil fund because we didn't burn it. Of course, we've benefited from all the uh, fossil fuel burning. Now, if you take the world today and you can see the current energy crisis in Europe, it's also clear that without fossil fuels, um, we can't have our industry going, we can't heat our homes. We're not there today in a different world. I mean, we all would like transition, I think, to alternative energy sources, but we couldn't just turn off the oil fields. And does the fund have close to unanimous support in Norway? I mean, of course, there is some debate in the parliament, should we have more investments in in renewable energy or should we do this or that? But I would say at large, the decisions have been done across the political borders, across the parliament. And and I think that's been very important for the fund because it's given, it's made the fund robust. So I think the unanimity around the investment strategy and the risk-taking is, is a very important feature of this fund. And that makes it robust to political meddling and, you know, changing strategies and think that could otherwise hurt the returns. Apart from going in a time machine back to the 1970s and changing what the decisions Britain made, what do you think other countries can learn current from Norway from the oil fund? So one is how to think about natural resources, how to actually try to create long time value from it. And another one is I think that they really thought long term in the beginning because the, the revenues weren't so big. And in the beginning, of course, this was not an important contributor to the government budget. They've been able to build this fund, which today has become very, very important for the Norwegian economy and for the government spending. But they could, I don't think you could expect that when they started out. They were just extremely consistent. Ed, I saw you shaking your head a few times. Was it just in disbelief and wonder that Norway managed to get this through and it could have yeah. we could have had a similar experience? 
I mean, it's partly that. And it's also, we have something on the podcast, Karen, called the Jeffocracy, where my colleague Jeff gets to be the ruler. Uh, and I was, I, I suppose what I was shaking my head about was the prospect of you getting your hands on the Norwegian <laughs> oil fund. Uh, I mean, you know, you could go on quite a spending splurge, I tend to think. Yes, there need to be checks and balances you know, built there, into There would definitely be yeah. need, need to be checks and balances. Well, look, Karen, you've been a brilliant guest. It's been really fascinating to talk to you. Karen Thorburn, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It was great talking to you guys. We're going to talk now to Associate Professor in Economics and Finance at UCL Institute for Innovation and Public Purpose. Welcoming back to the podcast, in fact, uh, Josh Ryan Collins. Hello. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Ed. How are you doing? Friend yeah. of the pod. Friend of the pod, yeah. He's, it's a select group. Anyway, select dish. Yes. Uh, so so um, help us out here, Josh, because many of us... I don't think that the world of public wealth funds is is that well understood um, and is quite new to a lot of us. So can you start off just broadly telling us what they are and what they aim to do? So public wealth funds are really a means for governments to have a stake in assets in society, productive assets, whether that's companies, but also real estate assets, There's a whole range of items that governments invest in. And I think the idea of them really and where where they've worked effectively is to run them at at one step removed from the everyday politics that we will face. But the idea is that they can then generate profits which can be reinvested for government use rather than um, just for private profit. Because governments have assets by nature. Um, is, Is a lot of this about tying those assets together. Yeah, I think that's one of the key kind of arguments is that the way, for example, in the UK, the government owns lots of different assets, but there's no real strategy for sort of putting them together and thinking about how you could maximise the returns on those assets or develop those assets in such a way as to help deliver social, economic and environmental goals. The sort of de facto attitude of governments towards public sector assets has been um, to sell them to the private sector in order to make to make money, to sort of free up money, as though those assets can have no value if they're held by the public sector. I think we're conscious that the phrase public wealth fund sort of covers a multitude of, or potentially a multitude of different ideas under it. There's sovereign wealth funds. Do you want to just talk about what are the different varieties we might be talking about? Yeah, so sovereign wealth funds are probably better known amongst the general public. But these are really more like financial investment vehicles that are publicly controlled. So a well-known example, for example, is the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund. Um, So it's a kind of way of diversifying and maximising the return on sort of pre-existing money that's been generated by the government. A public wealth fund is is much more sort of hands-on the government investing in uh, a particular asset. So it could be an energy company, it could be um, a real estate development. And the government actually creates a company that helps run that asset and creates a, a profit. Uh, and the government holds equity stakes in that asset so that it, if, if profits increase, there's going to be a return to the government. So it's, it's a very different kind of uh, thing, in a sense, from a sovereign wealth fund. And it probably is worth me stepping in here and saying a bit about what inspired this episode, which is partly that we announced at the Labour Party conference two ideas, a national wealth fund to invest in green industry of the future 
And as part of that, what we've called GB Energy, which is a publicly owned energy generating company. Now, just on the overarching umbrella, our rationale was the public sector is often, if you like, giving grants to the private sector or maybe sometimes loans to the private sector. But it it hasn't traditionally in Britain invested to get a return for the public. Mm. It's, it's quite a sort of one-way street, isn't it, Josh, in terms mm. of government might give some money, but it wouldn't then get a return for the public. Mm. So it's been about saying to companies, we want to give you an incentive to come and invest here. Now, that is quite different from what other countries have done, isn't it? That's right. So, um, yeah, it's exactly as you say. And, and actually, we, we were sort of stimulated to, to write a report on public wealth funds in the, during the COVID crisis, where there was a huge amount of government bailouts and debt being given to, to companies of all different sizes, because they were in a, a lot of financial trouble. But the question was, you know, what's the government going to see back from this? Is this just a sort of socialising of the risk that these companies might go under with no upside, with no return for that? investment. In other countries, as you say, um, there's a much more, there's more of an acceptance of the idea that the public sector can have an ongoing financial stake in assets that have strategic significance for, for the country. And all the money that these, these companies generate is, goes back into, into the government rather than being controlled by the private sector. We're a sort of an outlier on this, are we, Britain? Yeah, Britain, not only does Britain not have uh, any kind of public wealth fund, really, apart from the, the, the crown estate, one, one could potentially argue, but we also don't have any major national investment bank, state investment bank. Um, so, yeah, we, we're, we're an oddity um, in that sense. We've got this new national infrastructure bank that the government has established, yes? It's a positive step, but it's it's not going to generate the type of major investments in, for example, green energy uh, that we need. This this needs to be done on a much bigger scale. It's part of the trouble of getting something like this off the ground that the government who introduce it won't necessarily see a return on the investments by the next time they have to fight an election. That is a major challenge, and it requires a bit of foresight from a government to sort of say, you know, we're going to go beyond that. You can sort of see it, a public wealth fund as a sort of commitment device from the government to business to say, we are going to commit in the long term to this particular sector. So does that mean cross-party consensus on an idea like this then? Yeah, I think I think it needs that ideally. If you can make that happen it, it, all the better. I think there is some consensus that we're missing this type of institution. We've seen the Conservative Party create this infrastructure bank. So I think there's a sort of consensus on that, we, that we're missing institutions, probably less consensus on the scale uh, and the amount of upfront investment that's required. Obviously, Labour Party's put forward more ambitious funding than the Conservatives at the moment. I think the other key challenge is around the governance, right? So where they've failed in other countries in the past is that the governance of them is too closely tied to the party in power in, of the day. Um, and that's what they managed to do in Singapore and in Sweden, actually, is they managed to, to, to create bodies that were sort of at one step removed from the governments of the day. And they've lasted, you know, from 20, 30, 40 years now. And that's so interesting because you're describing one country in Sweden, which is often idealised by the left. And then in Singapore, you're, you're mentioning a country which is often provokes the same reaction from certain people on the right. Yeah, well, Singapore's an interesting one. So, so Singapore is held up as this kind of a very low tax, you know, free movement of capital nirvana by the, by the right. 
But actually, the Singapore government owns 90% of, of the land. And they, they have this enormous public wealth fund, Temasac, which controls the airlines, it controls huge real estate companies. So in fact, they're much closer to a sort of socialist kind of arrangement, actually, than many people think. And of course, the, the funds that they generate from having these enormous equity stakes in these key national industries and, and the real estate mean they, they can have very low corporate tax and very low income tax. You know, that one enables the other. What they're doing by, by sort of owning the land, controlling the use of the land, is they're capturing the uplift in the value of land over time as, as we invest. In the UK, we have completely opposite system. We tax corporations, we tax households, and we don't tax people on their wealth. We don't tax people on their land earnings. Um, and you can't kind of have lower taxes unless you capture those rents in some other way. So it's it's a sort of reverse model in Singapore. I tell you what is very striking to me about this, which might be surprising to some people, is the extent to which when I talk to business about these ideas, there is a sort of genuine openness to it. I think it's partly for the reasons you said earlier, Josh, which is the thing that business wants to invest in green industry, for example, is desperate for is a reliable partner. They look around the world and they see other governments willing to invest and they see ours not willing to invest. Yeah, absolutely. Essentially, we've had governments changing strategy on green investment every one or two years. This is an environment which creates uncertainty, lack of direction, um, and businesses you know, aren't, aren't interested in investing under those, under those types of, of conditions. How effective do you think that public wealth funds are in achieving more regional equality or changing people's lives day to day? Well, I think they can be very effective. We're actually working with Camden Council to, to, to help them develop a community wealth fund right now. And I think the key thing here is, is firstly to sort of establish, you know, what are the assets within our community? What's its potential value if we develop those assets over time, if we pool them together and create a fund that can be invested in lending to small businesses or, or affordable housing? As opposed to an approach of, you know, let's sell off our assets to the private sector to, to make some money in the short term. That would be the sort of key difference, I suppose, if you, if you take a sort of public wealth fund approach to the, to the regional or the community. So, so when you think about this idea, what makes you feel optimistic about its future? Well, I think that, that there's now an acceptance that the state has to play a role in supporting, for example, the green transition, but also problems like housing affordability. We need to create new institutions to deal with these issues. Now, what we need to do is sort of move beyond this reactive mode uh, of the state coming in and rescuing when things go wrong to a more proactive mode. The state can provide a direction for industry towards a a green future, towards a, a fairer future, towards a future where there's less regional inequality. That's the next the next step that needs to be taken that where there's still some, I think, some psychological challenges for the British political class. Well, look, Josh Ryan Collins, it's been great to hear your perspective and to hear about the wider case, if you like, for public wealth funds. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Ed. Thanks, Jeff. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. 
That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. To bring all this closer to home, I'm delighted to say that we're now joined in Jeff's house by Rehan Hack, who is the Campaigns Manager for the Community Wealth Fund Alliance. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So for our listeners who may not be familiar with this, tell us a little bit about what the Community Wealth Fund is and what it's aiming to do, if you would. Sure. So the Community Wealth Fund is a proposed new fund that would invest in vital community infrastructure and activities in the most deprived and left-behind neighbourhoods of the country. It also support the formation of their social fabric. And who's involved in this alliance? So it's supported by a cross-sector coalition of 620 organisations, and that includes over 50 local and combined authorities, including regional mayors such as Andy Street and Andy Burnham. And it's also supported by over 200 parliamentarians from across the political spectrum. And it featured in the government's levelling up white paper early in the year and has been championed by the levelling up supremo, Andy Haldane. How is this sort of different from just like investment in local areas that governments might put forward, you know, different funds or different sort of grants or, or whatever? It's very different. So the, the whole mission behind the Cumulative Fund is to provide long-term secure funding for these very left-behind neighbourhoods over 10 to 15 years to put them in the vanguard of decision-making and to really focus on repairing or rebuilding their social fabric. So the kind of places, spaces to me, the community organisations that operate in, within an area and also their connectivity to jobs and local services. What does that look like to start? Is it a pot of investment money from government and then it goes to these individual community wealth funds around the country and, and they are all separate entities? No, it would be a national fund and it's been inspired by something that Local Trust has been delivering over the last 10 years called the Big Local Programme which identified 150 very poor communities across the country that had historically missed out on statutory forms of funding and other grant sources of funding and gave them just over a million pounds each. And we told them, this money's yours, you can spend it however you want, but we'll provide the support and guidance for you to do so. And it's very much the inspiration of the model for the Community Wealth Fund. So, so how, how, is it, how does it build on that then? 
Sure. So what we're arguing is that the dormant asset scheme, so the UK is a world leader in this uh, in this respect. And dormant assets is like just money sat in bank accounts. That's um, people been, forgot been sat that. there doing nothing. Like so, I had a building society account yeah. when I was seven, yeah. and maybe yeah. there's like forty p in it. Yeah. Um, it's it's you're funding. You're, you've been put this, to good this, use. This, this 40, is me behind this. Your right? forty p is being. This put is to what good we're talking use. about. Absolutely. I, I, there is a slightly more than forty p um, in in uh, in this dormant asset scheme. So over the last ten to twelve years, is that released about 900 million, close to 900 million pounds worth of cash for good causes. Over the last few years, the government have kind of made moves and they've now successfully legislated to expand the scheme. So it includes additional assets beyond banks and building society, such as kind of pensions and insurance policies, which people have forgotten about and obviously just lying dormant in people's accounts. And the great thing about the scheme is that people never lose the money. So if like in five or 10 years time, if you remember that 40p, you can always claim it back. So there's always a little bit of money held back so people can make reclaims. But the idea is that you're put into good causes, you know, this money that's just lying dormant in people's accounts. So we're not talking about giving the money to local councils. You're talking about putting it directly into the hands of people. So who are the people? How are they organised? Well, these are local residents. So, you know, the big local is the kind of model for this. And what, what you find is that... Initially, they'll say if there's no community-led partnership or no residents kind of actively working to improve their area, you'd have some community facilitators, kind of mini Obamas coming in and kind of helping to organise the local community, tell them about the opportunity available, and then creating a forum that allows local people to come together. And through that, you can identify people who are willing to give a bit of their time. And the great thing about communities across the country is they're all very different. You know, they have their own unique wants, desires and wishes for the future, but they also have an abundance of talent. And it's about tapping into that. So you in effect, you're bringing together some residents who are very active and motivated and can co- contribute some extra time and energy towards um, getting involved and allow the local area to determine the priorities of how uh, they spend their money. And what's the, if you had to sort of explain or point to some examples of what the big local has managed to do and why it needs, why it's worth expanding, what would you point to? Well, I mean, it's it's been transformative in terms of really strengthening people's sense of local pride and improving levels of community engagement and just perceptions of place. But what happens is that once communities gain that confidence, they they, they feel much more capable and uh, feel like they have a sense of agency. So we've seen a lot of areas also engage in economic regeneration. So we've had uh, 98 of those 150 big local areas uh, either build or renew a community space or a hub that provides a focal point for bringing the areas together. But then 50% of the big local areas we found through our research have also engaged in different forms of economic activity, such as providing incubator spaces for new businesses, supporting people into work, or in the case of this community on the outskirts of Bristol called Lawrence Western, actually building the largest community and wind turbine yeah. in the country. So that that took about six years in which to get the planning permission and to secure the external funding, which they've done. Uh, spades are in the ground. It'll be ready um, early next year. And the genius of that is that it will power 3,500 homes. But the money generated from that scheme will be pumped directly back into the community. And they're expecting about £300,000 a year, which can be directly controlled and invested in the community. What's the tension here between the money being spent through local government and it being spent, if you like, sort of outside local government? Yeah, good question. So the existing scheme doesn't really involve local governments. What we're saying is that this is a complementary tool in the project of renewing those left-wing areas. So this is not some sort of silver bullet. 
but it's a vital form of intervention to help rebuild that social infrastructure. And I think if you see how disillusioned some people have become, one of the things they often say is that they lack agency, they lack power, and they feel their community is missing out on funding. So the whole idea behind the community fund is to provide a small amount of money to really galvanise the area to lead local change, which obviously supports you know, the activities of what the local council might be doing as well. And I mean, some local authorities could also do this. I mean, in fact, some local authorities are doing this, aren't they? A number of them are, I mean, in the sense of giving residents a much greater say in the way money is spent on the local area and so on. East Ayrshire, I think, and other places. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah, some areas are doing it. But I guess what we want to do is kind of turbocharge and take it to a more national level. So last year, we worked with Frontier Economics, a leading consultancy, to try to model what the potential return is from a community wealth fund. Over 10 years, a typical £1 million investment will lead to a £3.2 million return in fiscal and economic and social benefits for these areas. So we definitely see this as having quite sizable um, economic and fiscal payback. And that was actually quite a conservative assumption because there was stuff that they couldn't actually quantify, such as improved levels of social capital and social cohesion. What does this idea need to get off the ground? So at the moment, there is this conversation. So we're kind of in the end game of, of the campaign. The government are now asking the question how they should spend close to a billion pounds worth of new cash from the dual mass scheme uh, in Mark of England. There's an opportunity now for individuals, community organisations, um, anyone really actually to have their say in terms of how that's to be spent. And we're arguing that that money should be used to help create this uh, transformative community wealth fund. So it's a government consultation which has just closed. And you'd expect a decision in the coming months from government on this? Yeah, um, the government wants... I mean, it's hard to predict any decisions from government <laughs> at the moment, let's be honest, but yeah, sorry. Yeah, we, we would expect a, a decision probably by the uh, beginning of ne- next year as to, as to how they're um, going to spend this money. Well, Rehan Huck, thank you so much for coming on and explaining the Community Wealth Fund Alliance, and we will watch this space. Thank you for having me. Well, given that wealth funds have been on your mind of late, what did you think of that conversation? Well, this is a role reversal. Normally, I ask you. I th- I 200 that- and how many episodes in? We're keeping it fresh. It's like swapping sides of the bed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's a sort of Liz Trust style pause. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, um, I think, in a way, I thought Karen was very striking, wasn't she? Mm. Because it's quite hard often to look in the sort of long sweep of history at things. And I thought that what the UK did with its North Sea oil proceeds and what Norway did, and I wasn't being flippant when I said, here's what you could have won. I mean, no. look, look at the difference. Yeah. Karen wanted to sort of credit the bureaucrats. No doubt the bureaucrats, as she put it, have a role in this. But I think there must be something about the political culture, long-termism, the fact that it's been cross-party, the fact that you didn't have someone come along and just say, let's fritter it away. I think that's what's really interesting about this, actually, that it requires a long-termism. In some ways, you could be gifting your rival party a windfall Yes, at some stage in a future government. And also, you, you've been in government. If, if How tempting is it if, if money comes in, not to instantly earmark that money for something instead of thinking in a long-term way? Well, I guess the only equivalent you can, ha- you can think of in Britain, or the most obvious equivalent, is the NHS. Mm. So, and maybe it's partly that if you create popular institutions, then succeeding parties then keep them in place. You know, in our case, the NHS national minimum wage, two examples. So maybe it's partly that. So maybe it's more, not accidental, but circumstantial element to it. It's what the historical path dependency may be. And then the other thing is just talking to Josh, 
this sense that it's not just like Norway's unusual and Britain is like everyone else. It's more that lots of other countries have, in different ways, had public wealth funds, and they're not all sovereign wealth funds. They're different. In I different love that ways. two examples of Sweden and Singapore. Yeah, yeah, and we've been very much, as I said in the interview, we've been very much an outlier when it comes to these things. So hopefully, what we're putting forward with the National Wealth Fund and indeed GB Energy. It's sort of learning some of those lessons. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, ever since we started the podcast, we've been accustomed to fevered emails and text messages from Ed at 1.30, 2.30 in the morning. But I Gordon think, Brown time. I think this, this was the, the biggest hold the front page moment we've had so far. Yes, well, it's so exciting. It's about, I think it must be one of the oldest Lidos, if not the oldest Lido in Britain, which has reopened. And we're joined by Alice LePage, who is Learning and Engagement Trustee at Cleveland Pools near Bath. Alice, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for inviting me. We're so, thrilled. It was, it was really like, I want LePage on the podcast. Exactly. Whatever it takes, get me LePage. Yeah. So go on, tell us, Alice, the story. What's happening? Well, yeah, so we are Britain's oldest Lido. Um, built in 1815. And yeah, we've just finished our restoration project. So we've been closed to swimmers for almost 40 years. Wow. Um, And it's just, uh, yeah, finally, after a huge community campaign, we've managed to raise enough money and to get the pool open to swimmers again, open to the public so people can come and enjoy the Lido. And tell us about your engagement and involvement with this. So I I joined the trust about two and a half years ago, so just before construction started, because we we had quite a large grant, 6.8 million from uh, the National Lottery Heritage Fund. As part of that, there's a huge activity plan that goes alongside the construction project. So I got involved to try and support our community and engagement officer to make sure that our community was really at the heart of this project. Although, in fairness, it already was and has been for the last 20 years throughout the whole campaign. And what did it look like over those 40 years? Was it sort of all cracks and shopping trolleys? Um, I th- I'm not sure actually whether lily there were ponds. any... <laughs> yeah, there were lily ponds, definitely. There were lots of fish, uh, lots of toads and frogs. We've had the ecologists on board to try and rehome all of this wildlife. It was really derelict. Um, it was on the English Heritage Buildings at Risk Register. We eventually kind of campaigned for it to be grade two star listed to be upgraded to that so that it, it had to be protected. And yeah, and it was just a case of for about 20 years after it closed um, finally to swimmers in the 80s. It had a brief life as a trout farm after that. When it properly closed to the public, it was a case of just trying to stop it from falling down while we raised enough money to try and um, restore it. I mean, that is just so exciting. What are the plans for the Lido then? Well, um, we had our first swimmers in about a week ago, just over a week ago. So the plan is that, yes, people will be able to come and swim. There'll be some cold water swimming events, um, but then also it will be heated from next year. So we are installing a water source heat pump. So we wanted to kind of make our environmental impact as as low as possible. We are right on the river. We're right next to the River Avon. So, you know, we wanted to kind of enjoy our natural surroundings without you know having such a negative impact on it. And so to avoid a gas boiler, we're installing this water source heat pump um, and that will heat the water to around, we're hoping, aiming for about 28 degrees. 28 well, this is, this is what I mean, Ed is very interested in water temperature. He's got wow. his own thermometer. His all own year zapper. round? Is it going to be all year no, round? No. So the water source right. heat pump will be just for the peaks, kind of summer season, April to September. And then it will be cold water swimming in the, in the winter months. And are you open at the moment? 
So we've had a couple of swimming events um, yeah. and we're we're kind of working out our plan for this kind of preview season before our, our full opening season for April. I want to be there, Jeff. I mean, I've looked online and this is this is like no ordinary Lido. I mean, not that I'm against ordinary Lidos, but I mean, it's absolutely spectacular. It is something a bit special. Even when it was derelict, people would come on site and just be speechless. Just explain why it's so spectacular. I mean, I can't, I'm not going to do justice to what it looks like, but just say, go on, sort of excite our palate or what the whatever the swimming equivalent of a palate is yeah i'm not sure that i can do it justice either but it's you know it's nestled right down in a little valley right next to the river avon it's a beautiful georgian crescent um we think it's the smallest georgian crescent in bath and it's surrounded by trees by you know the wildlife it's very very quiet you hear stories about you know kingfishers uh swimming across over the top of you while you're while you're in the water, all of those sorts of things. It's I think just... the birds are really important. My general thing is bird life is really important. <laughs> you've, yes. you've developed kinship with a heron. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Now, it was. I'm looking online and it was under historicpools.org.uk mm-hmm. and it says that it, the date was built was 1815 to 1816, as you said. Arctic believed to be John Pinch the Elder. The yes. design of neighbouring cottages. What can you tell us about John Pinch the Elder? Um, well, yeah, he, so he was one of the architects that was trying to change the way that Bath was kind of structured. So they were extending the city out towards where the Lido is, but actually they ran out of money. So the Lido was supposed to be introducing this new, not so new, middle class to that part of the town and to then kind of build more houses out that side of the city. But uh, so he was quite in, important in kind of bringing in this beautiful design and to try and bring in the kind of new communities to that to that part of town. Now, I can't help noticing also, and this is something that Jeff would want me to mention, that Cleveland is Britain's only surviving Georgian Lido. It was built on the banks of the River Avon after nude bathing in the river was banned in 1801 by the Bathwick Water Act. A subscription scheme was started to raise the money to build an exclusive and secluded pool for the, quote, gentlemen of Bath, with Bath's, Bath's smallest crescent of changing rooms. The demand for a separate pool for ladies followed a few years later. Yes, yes. So it was very much to kind of protect people's sensibilities. And it was a place for the middle classes, the Georgian middle classes, to kind of socialise, really, and also kind of for their health and well-being. So it ties in with all of the things that are really important about cold water swimming now it was river fed so it was you know it was just pure river water at that time and then yeah the kind of very small plunge pool for the ladies was was built um, completely secluded different door you know hidden away from the men and it was you know very small it was you could literally get in and get back out again and it was it was for your health as much as anything else you know you were kind of prescribed that cold water experience and can I just ask, are you still bound by that act? Was it the Bathwick Bathing <laughs> yeah, Act? Yeah, I think we're, we're still enforcing the Bathwick okay, Act. So, yeah. still on, it seems like it's still on the statute books. And what's been the local reaction, Alice, to this? It's been totally incredible. And I think, like I said, overwhelmingly positive. Um, and I think really part of that is because actually a lot of the locals have been involved for so many years. You know, they've been following this campaign. They've been part of this campaign from gardening on site to fundraising to doing all of our branding or working with community groups. You know, we've got a huge team of volunteers who have just put their heart and soul into it. With the trust, it was three people who, you know, one person in particular, Anne Dunlop and and two other people, Janice Dreisbach and Roger Horton, who got together and just said, we can't let this 
you know, go, we can't allow this to happen to this site. And yeah, they just gathered as many people as they could to join their campaign. And and it really shows that, you know, the power of the people and, you know, communities can do this, they can come together, they can change where they live and the spaces around them for the better. And it has been a long slog and, you know, a lot of challenges, but they've managed to reopen it after, you know, being involved for 20 years. And and obviously it it came with a big grant to get it up and running. Mm -hmm. Are you reasonably confident that it will be able to self-finance itself day to day, year to year? Yes, yes, we are. So we have an operator on board, but we are keeping the prices as low as we can so that as many of the community can use it and the trust will be working to try and help lower income families and, and people that might not you know, regularly go to a Lido to be able to afford to come. And I know you said people are swimming already, but have have you thought about some kind of official aquatic ribbon cutting? Because if so, I know somebody who has a lot of swimming paraphernalia <laughs> that they would love to show off in public. I don't think I can show it off in public. I definitely, I think you have to be flat. <laughs> I think, I think, I think I'd be suited rather than sort of, you know, in my swimming trunks. Um, I, think, I think the trunks are probably a deal breaker, when, Alice. When can we visit Alice is what Jeff is asking. Well, you know, we we haven't got our public open dates yet, but like I said, there are some some swimming events, so uh, so we'll certainly let you know when they are. Um, You can always keep an eye on our website as well because we'll announce everything there. Sign up to our newsletter, but um, but yeah, we'll we're sure to give you an invite when we've got some more dates. Fantastic. Well, look, many congratulations, Alice, to you and all of the team who's behind this. I think it is really exciting. You know, reopening Lido's, having Lido's around the country. We want more Lido's. We want more open water swimming in the meantime thank you so much for joining us thank you very much send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com find us on facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast Whoa-ho-ho. we're in the outro and aside from the news article about the lido that you sent around this week uh, l- last night you got very excited because there is going to be a major league pickleball, pickleball yes. competition 12 teams in the United States. So what what does this mean? That people have smelled money in it and it's going to become an enormous franchise? Maybe. I think we should try and be part of that league. What about we think smart and we try and acquire the podcasting rights? What? Pickleball commentary? Yeah. What would the name of the podcast be? I mean, not in a pickle. <laughs> I mean, that's, you're pretty quick. <laughs> pickle of the day. Pickle down economics. Pickle down, very good. Honestly, you 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 are doing well today. I always say I don't like brainstorming. Should we get to thinking? I guess. Yes, let's think? do that. Thanks to Karin Thorburn, Josh Ryan Collins, and Rayhan Hack, and of course. Alice LePage. Alice LePage. Rachel Barmer is our content producer. Emma Caution produces our audio. We're supported by Joe Kenyon at Goldfish. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed composed the music. James Deacon made the ident. And the artwork was designed by... Henry Cull. He's been Ed Miliband. He's been Jeff Lloyd. And these have been... Reasons to be Cheerful. Reasons to be Cheerful.